I have the privilege of bringing us God's word. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the book of John, uh, we're looking at John chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 18, and I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and I think you'll see it on the screen behind me as well. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. This is the reading of God's word. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, if you're new or visiting for the first time, uh, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at the church, and um, I want to start today with a confession. Um, I want to say that uh, I really struggled to write this sermon. Um, I had massive writer's block this week. And typically by Thursday or Friday of the week, I'm already kind of revising, editing, whatever I'm going to preach that Sunday. Um, but honestly, like it was Thursday morning and I had nothing. I, I literally had nothing. And I was in our church office uh, having a mental breakdown because um, for pastors, as you know, Easter is the Super Bowl. Um, if there's one Sunday in the year uh, when you feel like you have to bring it, it's Easter Sunday. Um, it's, you know, this is the first in-person Easter service we've had as citizens at Roybal. Um, you know, you have that beautiful photo booth outside, uh, Easter egg hunt scheduled for the kids. Um, you have tacos for lunch, which everyone should definitely stay for. Um, but, but I started, I had kind of an out-of-body experience. I started thinking about all this stuff that's going on, and, and the thought came to my mind, what if the resurrection never happened? What if all this is, is just religious pageantry? 
what if uh, Easter Sunday services are just like a, an emotional steroid shot that gets us high for an hour on Sunday and then does nothing for us when we walk back into the world on Monday? And I felt this heaviness come over me. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, um, I officiated my first funeral as a pastor. Um, and because of the relative age of our congregation, I get to do a lot of weddings, but it was my first funeral. And it was the funeral um, for a woman who had lost her life um, to cancer. She was a young mom, and she left her husband and her two kids behind. And this past week, as I'm having this existential crisis, I'm asking myself, do I really believe what I said at that funeral? that there is life beyond death, that this isn't the end, that one day we will be reunited with the ones we love and share with them all the stories we couldn't share with them while they were here with us on earth. Do I really believe that? Five years ago, I held my mother-in-law's hand as she breathed her last breath, and I said omonim, which means mother or mom in Korean. I said, I'll see you soon. But this week, I had a panic attack, and, and I told this to Carol when I got home. I said, what if we don't see her soon? What if she never meets her grandson? What if she's not looking down on us like we always say she is? What if that's all there is? What if death is the end? Because if that's the case, if death is all there is, then it's true what the Apostle Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, we're all just wasting our time. Our preaching is useless. Our faith is useless. And at the end of the day, all this religious stuff that we do, this is all just smoke and mirrors for an impending death that's coming for all of us. Happy Easter, everyone. Um, and so I'm having these dark thoughts on Thursday. What if Jesus wasn't raised? What if there is no savior? What if there is no salvation? What if there is no forgiveness of sins? And I wrote it in big letters at the top of my blank word document. I wrote the words, what if? And I started to think so much of our lives are driven by the what ifs. What if I never make it in this industry? What if I never get married? What if I never have kids? What if I can never walk my daughter down the aisle? What if my parents get sick? What if I can't provide for my family? What if, what if, what if? And underneath all these what if questions, I re realize that lies the biggest what if question of all. What if this life is all there is? What if this life is all there is? It's a question that gets to the very heart of the fundamental problem of our humanity, our fear of death. You know, in 2015, um, Sheldon Solomon wrote a fascinating book called The Worm at the Core. And um, in it, he uses like 500 different uh, research studies and experiments that have been done over the years to basically make the case that all of human behavior from the day we're born is basically driven by a profound fear and anxiety around death. He says all the decisions we make on what schools to send our kids to, um, all the relationships that we cultivate, all the people that we reward and look up to in this life 
our, our preoccupation with shopping, um, our desire to eradicate the people who are different from us, um, who don't look like us, all of this ultimately stems from a profound anxiety and terror around death. Now Solomon isn't a Christian, so his solution to the problem is simply to find ways to manage your anxiety and do the best you can uh, with what cards you've been dealt. Pretty bleak stuff. Okay, it's the YOLO mentality of life. And this is where my headspace was this past Thursday. Everything just felt dark. And then I opened up my Bible and reread this resurrection account that we just read in John chapter 20, and the first words of the chapter jumped out at me. It said, early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark. While it was still dark. The story of Easter doesn't start with celebration. It doesn't start with fanfare. It starts in the dark. And the story of Easter is for people who are in the dark. It's for people who are disoriented, tired, frustrated, uncertain, scared. You know, Mary Magdalene doesn't skip to the tomb thinking that the tomb is going to be empty. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb to weep. This is why she, she's so confused as to what's going on. Like, you know, the, the first thing she thinks, she's panicking because she thinks someone stole the body. She goes to the disciples and she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Right? You have to understand that Mary Magdalene is coming out of the most traumatizing weekend of her life. She's watched this man who once healed her from seven demons be humiliated, beaten, stripped, and crucified on a cross. She is not in the right headspace at all. This man she loved. And quick sidebar, isn't it so interesting that the entire story of the resurrection, the singular event that our faith is founded upon, hinges upon the eyewitness testimony of this very distraught woman who was once demon-possessed. Like, if you were going to make a story up, this would be the worst way to do it. Okay, we, I mean, we've been going through the book of Ruth, and you have to understand that in those times, women had zero power, authority, and privilege. If you were trying to convince first century Jews of anything, you knew not to use women in the story, let alone a woman who was demon-possessed. I mean, imagine if a woman who was distraught and hysterical ran into this auditorium this morning and said, I saw Jesus walking around. None of you would be back next week. Okay, you would be like, this church is wild. And yet, the only detail, the gospel writers diverge on a lot of different details, but the only detail that shows up in all four accounts is that Mary Magdalene was there. Some food for thought. All this to say, what we have in Mary Magdalene is a woman who goes to the tomb expecting to see what anyone would expect to see after a person has died. She expected to see the dead person stay dead. She was not expecting a resurrection. You know, you and I, we often hear about the resurrection and we talk about a person coming back to life and our first instinct is to say, well, you know, we're in 2022, we have science and we have technology and we have all these things that, that you know, that all that is just ancient folklore. Right? As though like people back then were just super gullible and everyone back then believed it. No. 
Nobody in those times believed that a person could come back from the dead. You can do your own research, but no Jew would have believed in a bodily resurrection, and certainly no Greek or Roman would have believed in a bodily resurrection. In fact, they didn't like the idea of bodily resurrection because Greeks and Romans thought the body was bad and the spirit was good. So we have to understand that this was just as unbelievable for them as it may be for us now. Nobody had a category for this. They had no source material from which they could even make up this story, which is why even though Jesus predicted on multiple occasions that he would die and be raised in three days, nobody was hanging out at the tomb waiting for it to happen. Nobody. And so it makes sense that Mary's first assumption is that the body's been stolen. She's so confused that when Jesus does finally appear to her, she actually thinks he's the gardener which I think is a really hilarious detail, right? Mary does not come looking for a risen Jesus. It's the risen Jesus who comes looking for Mary. Well, according to this account, Mary, upon seeing the empty tomb, goes ahead, runs, and grabs two disciples, Peter, and it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in case you didn't know who the disciple Jesus loved was, it's John, the one writing this book. I just think that's really funny, right? He's like... Yeah, she went and got Peter and then the one Jesus really loved, you know. Um, and, then, and then he adds this detail, and then they ran to the tomb, but, but John outran Peter, right? It's like, it's, it's, it's so random, but it's like, if I'm writing the book too, yeah, I might as well let people know I beat Peter. You know, I got some legs, you know. Um, anyway, the two get to the tomb. And how each responds is very telling of their respective personalities. I'm convinced that John is probably like an Enneagram 5 or 6, you know, because he gets there, he gets to the entrance, he sees the, the, the strips of linen, and he's like, yeah, I'm not going, you know, I've seen enough. Um, you know, and, and Peter, on the other hand, who I think is an Enneagram 8, right, he just runs straight in. Right? We know, uh, it, you know, if you read the Gospels, Peter is super aggressive, always putting his foot in his mouth. And so Peter goes in, he looks around, sees the strips of linen and the cloth, which in and of itself is kind of strange because no grave robber would have taken the time to like neatly in, disembalm the body and then like fold the linens, right? I, I don't know any grave robber who would do that. Um, and so he looks around and, and finally John decides to go in. Right? And it says, John saw and believed. Okay? Again, just think it's really funny that John is writing this. And, of course, Peter's just looking around, doesn't know what's going on. But John saw and believed. Right? A lot of little passive-aggressive comments in here. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, John adds this subtle detail that even though he saw and believed, neither of them, neither John nor Peter, understood from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It says it there in verse 9. In other words, John puts the pieces together that maybe there's been a resurrection, but he doesn't really understand the significance of that within the grand story of Scripture. Right, and we know this because later on that same evening, if you keep reading down, it says all the disciples were locked in a room in fear of their life. So they saw the empty tomb, but they were still living in fear. Even if Jesus is alive, they still don't understand what that means for them. And isn't that true for so many of us sitting here this morning? It's one thing to believe that a Jewish man got up from the dead 2,000 years ago. It's another thing to have that reality actually mean something to us 
in Los Angeles in 2022. Now imagine that most of you here today can probably relate to at least one of the characters in this story. Some of you here are sitting here feeling like Mary Magdalene. You're weeping in the dark. Maybe these past two years have been hard. You've lost someone you loved. You've walked through depression, a broken marriage, loneliness, trauma. And maybe you actually feel kind of a disconnect between the state of your heart and all this celebratory hoopla. And that's okay. Maybe some of you feel like Peter, who was once Jesus' right-hand man, his best friend, who shared every waking moment with him, but who ended up denying him three times and abandoning him in the moment Jesus needed him the most. Maybe you feel like Peter. Maybe you feel like you've failed God or you feel like you're failing as a husband or a wife or as a son or a daughter. Maybe you feel like you're failing as a friend. Maybe you've said or done some things that you regret and you're carrying the weight of all that guilt and shame on your shoulders. Maybe some of you feel like John, like you believe in Jesus, you grew up in the church maybe, and you know a lot about Jesus, but you don't really know him. You haven't really experienced the power of his resurrection, the power of his forgiveness in your life. Or maybe you feel like me this past Thursday, questioning everything, doubting. And I wanna say Jesus meets you too, because a few verses down, we read about the disciple Thomas, who doesn't believe what the disciples have seen. And he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus could have gotten upset. He could have thrown his hands up and said, are you serious, Thomas? What do I have to do to convince you that this has happened? But he doesn't do that. It says he shows up and he lets Thomas touch his hands and his side the grace of God to meet us in our doubt, in our grief, in our apathy, in our rebellion. This is who Jesus is. And so however you come today, skeptical, cynical, curious, heartbroken, the risen Jesus is alive and wants to encounter you. He wants you to know just how loved you are. He wants you to know that he sees you and that he hasn't forgotten about you. You know, one of the most powerful scenes in the entire New Testament is in Luke's gospel on the road to Emmaus where you have these two disillusioned disciples on the very day of the resurrection walking away from Jerusalem. And it says their faces are downcast because they feel like everything was a sham. Everything hung, they hung their lives on was a lie because Jesus is dead. The Messiah, the long-awaited king, is dead. And so as it happens, as they're walking away from Jerusalem, it says Jesus comes up and walks alongside them. Jesus walks with them as they walk away from him. And what he does on that road is so interesting. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus understood that showing his resurrected body wasn't enough. Just like it wasn't enough for Peter and John to just see the empty tomb, because according to verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They didn't understand that the resurrection was sweeping them up into a much larger story. 
And so how I like to use my remaining time today is to share that story with you. I know that for some of you, this is your first time in a church. And I want you to know that this thing that we celebrate today, the resurrection, is not an isolated event. It's the culmination of the greatest story ever told. And let me share that story with you. It's a story that, like this story, starts in the dark, in a world that is formless, void, and empty. But a voice cuts through the darkness and says, let there be light. And the Bible says, there was light. And then with a word, God begins to create. God begins to bring beauty, order, form, and shape to a world full of chaos. And the picture that results is that of a garden where everything is in its right place, where all of, hum all of creation is living in perfect harmony, joy, and peace. And God places in the middle of that garden the pinnacle of his creation, a man and a woman created in his image, called to be God's ambassadors and representatives in the world to embody and mediate his love, goodness, and presence. Life was good. You could say it was heaven on earth. But there was another voice that presented itself in the garden, the voice of a serpent that whispered a question that still haunts all of us today. Is God really good? Does God really know what he's doing? At the moment that you and I are sitting here today on the other side of the world, there is a war in Ukraine where countless people have been displaced from their homes. Countless people have lost their lives. There is ongoing systemic injustice in this country. There are constant reports of senseless acts of violence that we read in the news. I'm sure all of us have asked at some point over the past two years, is God really good? That was the question posed to Adam and Eve, and they took the bait, deciding that maybe they didn't need God. Maybe they knew better than him. Maybe they could be their own arbiters of right and wrong. And in their attempt to carry a weight their bodies were never built to handle, human beings unleashed a devastating force in the world that would leave all of creation in a state of utter chaos and disarray, alienated from each other and from God. It's what the Bible calls sin. And if you don't know what sin is, that's okay. We've all felt it. It's that deep stomach-level sadness in our gut. It's that angst in all of us that looks at the world and knows things aren't the way they should be. And so begins the story of humanity trying to find purpose and meaning and satisfaction apart from their creator. And so only three chapters into the Bible, it's dark again. But in Genesis 12, out of the darkness, a familiar voice cuts through and speaks to a 75-year-old man named Abram who thinks his life is over. And this voice makes a seemingly impossible promise to make Abram into a great nation through which he will bless all the nations. This nation will be called Israel, a group of people chosen by God to do what Adam and Eve could not do, to be his representatives, to mediate, embody his love, presence, and goodness in a world that desperately needed it. Unfortunately, Israel turned out to be no better than Adam and Eve. Even after God rescues them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they still choose to live as slaves rather than as free people. The only thing worse than living as slaves is living as slaves while actually being free. 
Well, God sends prophet after prophet to warn his people that their choices are a dead end, that they need to turn back to the source of life, but rather than repent of their own wickedness and sin, they do what all of us do when the world feels like it's imploding. They blame the government. They blame the president. They blame the policy. And so they beg God, give us an earthly king, which God does. In fact, he gives them multiple kings, all of whom ultimately fail to bring the peace and justice Israel desperately longs for. Soon things begin to spiral so deeply out of control that God's people are forced out of their own land and exiled in Babylon, where home is but a distant memory. All of God's people begin to ask that proverbial question, what if? What if this is it? What if all hope is lost? What they get in response is 400 years of utter silence, and just like that, it's dark again. Which is why the opening words of the book of John in the New Testament are so profound. They're familiar words, and they cut through the darkness like a knife. In the beginning, in the beginning, signaling the dawn of a new creation, and in the first verses of John, we read that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The story isn't over. The very word of God, Jesus, who once brought light into the world, now puts on flesh and bone and steps into the very world he created, steps into the mess and the chaos, announcing that a new kingdom has come. For the Jews, this was an earth-shattering announcement because they had been waiting for generations for this long-awaited king. This was supposed to be their, the answer to all of their what-if questions, the king who would free them from oppression and injustice and evil. God had not abandoned them after all. But something strange happens. Jesus talks about this new kingdom, but nothing he does looks like the actions of a conquering king. While he does perform some amazing miracles, he doesn't gather a powerful army around him like you would expect a king to. He gathers 12 ordinary fishermen. He doesn't spend his time with celebrities, with the powerful, the wealthy, and the important. He spends his time with sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. He doesn't ride into Jerusalem on a noble steed, but on a donkey. And in the most anticlimactic fashion, this king doesn't overthrow the Roman Empire like everyone wanted him to. He's humiliated and executed between two criminals on a Roman cross. And on that day, we read that from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. And though the world had been dark before, it had never been this dark. This was a moment darker than any other moment in human history. Nobody understood what they were witnessing. Nobody understood that what they were witnessing wasn't just a good teacher killed for his revolutionary beliefs, but the spotless Lamb of God slain for the sins of humanity. Jesus was the perfect image of God. Jesus did what Adam and Eve could not do and what Israel could not do and what you and I could not do. And yet, rather than allow his people to suffer the consequences of the world they created by sinning and substituting themselves for God, God substitutes himself for us. God suffers for us. And when Jesus breathed his last breath, it really did seem like darkness would have the final word this time. But then we just read it. While it was still dark, 
a sliver of light peeks out of the empty tomb. Christ is risen. He is risen. And this resurrected Jesus again defies every expectation. He doesn't march up to Rome. He doesn't go for blood or vengeance or payback. This risen Jesus goes straight to the forgotten, the grieving, the failures, and the misfits. And not only does he go straight to them, he promises that the same power that raised him from the dead is now living in and through their veins. You see, the hope of a resurrected Jesus isn't just one random man coming back to life. It's all of creation coming back to life. It's all things being made new. It's things going back to the way they were supposed to be. And it means that you and I can now participate in this new gift of life. Now you have to remember that on Resurrection Sunday, the entire world didn't just go back to the way it was supposed to be in an instant. Just like your circumstances probably will not change that much by the end of this service. You will still go back into work tomorrow morning and deal with that difficult coworker. You will still go back and maybe fight with your spouse. I hope not today. You will still go back to a world where you will ask yourself, are things really different? Are things changing? Death is still around us. Life is still hard. But I want you to know that something did change on that first Easter Sunday, and it was Jesus. He who was once dead was now alive. And what this means is that even if your world doesn't change in an instant tomorrow, you can be changed today. And so wherever you find yourself sitting here this morning, whether you're searching, whether you're hurting, or sitting in complete darkness, the resurrected Jesus invites you to step into the light and participate in a story God has been writing from the very beginning of time. This is the hope of Easter. Let's pray. Risen Savior, we thank you. We thank you that in the darkest of night, because you rose from the grave, there will always be light. And on this day, we celebrate new life, not just physical new life, not just eternal life, life after death, but we celebrate the reality of new life today new life in us, new life in those around us. We celebrate the fact that there are second chances. We celebrate the fact that people can change. We celebrate the fact that we can change, that we can turn over a new leaf, that this is not just wishful thinking, but because you rose from the grave, that there is hope for all of us. God, I especially pray for those who come today and, like Mary, feel disoriented. There's something about all this celebration and all this 
uh, stuff that's happening on this day that doesn't quite resonate with us, and we feel as though we're sitting in the dark. God, I ask that you would encounter all of my brothers and sisters who find themselves in that space because this is who you are. You sit with the grieving. You sit with those who are insecure and anxious and feel like they failed. This is the hope of the resurrection. So Lord, I pray that even now as we respond in song, as we join our voices as a community, you would remind us that this is not just an isolated incident and today is not just one day out of a year. But we pray that you would remind us that all of us here are being swept up into a grand story, a story that you've been writing from the very beginning of time. You are a God who always brings beauty out of chaos. We love you. We thank you. And we pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.